Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today we are talking to Josh Shaw, who is an opera director who has worked all over the United States, but is mainly based in Los Angeles, California. He's known for doing a lot of more unique uh, translations of the operas, as well as different settings. He just did a uh, magic flute set in Mario and Zelda's worlds, which we went and saw, so I'm sure you saw some of my pictures on Instagram and Facebook. Um, currently, he just opened a show that is uh, Madame Butterfly, but translated into English and Japanese instead of done in Italian, uh, which is, I don't know why nobody's done that before. <laughs> He's the artistic director of the Pacific Opera Project, who did both the Magic Flute um, and Star Trek and some other things. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. <laughs> So one of the questions we always like to start with, because it's always interesting to know, how did you get into theater? And did you start with opera, or did you start with music, or how did how did this whole life come about? So I definitely started with music. Uh, I grew up singing in church, and in, in, then in high school choir, and I went to uh, college um, as a music major, a music education major. I thought I wanted to teach high school choir, and... Um, one semester into that, I pretty much figured out I did not want to do that, but, uh, <laughs> but I was already committed and, you know, had scholarships to be a vocal major. And uh, when you're a vocal major, you learn classical singing. Uh, and so, you know, you're, you're, whether you want to or not, you're auditioning for the opera. So I did, <laughs> and I was cast in the first opera. You know, I had never seen an opera. Uh I had really never been in a musical or anything like that. Um, I was just a singer, and uh, but uh, was cast as a lead in the first opera I was ever in, and that was just kind of the beginning of the end for me. And uh, <laughs> at that point, you know, you you get in so deep. I I, I often tell people that uh, it's just insanity that I never saw a professional opera until I was in grad school. And here I was seven, six years into my education to do something that I had never even seen before. Um, wow. But that's just kind of the way our education system works sometimes. You get on a path and you just, you're on it. And um, <clears throat> I mean, I guess it's probably not that different from being a doctor. It's not like you, you go and uh, follow a doctor for a day before you go to med school, right? Uh, or before you go to <laughs> undergraduate. Uh, so I did that, and I came out with a master's degree, uh, and I was uh, really torn between music, theater, and opera at the time, and uh, was doing some of both, um, and then came out to L.A. and took a couple years just to get my footing out here, started singing out here quite a bit, and then um, just, uh, I don't I don't know how it happened where I started directing, to be honest. Uh <laughs> I was just finding myself doing more and more stuff behind the scenes for, for productions, whether that was bringing my own costumes or helping with the, the marketing or building the set very often. And at some point, it was just like, you know, I think I can do this better from scratch uh, all on my own. Mm -hmm. and, um, that's how it kind of started. And then so that started uh, <clears throat> a little precursor company to pop. Uh, which was called Pacific Coast Opera, and then quickly to Pop. And now nine years in with Pop, uh, you know, my work here has led to directing across the country and all of that. And that's that's kind of how I got to where I am now. Did you ever take classes in all the backstage stuff? Like, how did you learn how to build a set or do marketing or any of that? I don't know. Just do it by doing. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, I, I feel I, like that's it. I did not take any classes in stage design or lighting design or um, directing <laughs> any of it. Uh, I took classes on how to sing and a few acting classes. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of, I think that's why I love this career is because it's, 
the way I'm doing it, it's so multifaceted. I mean, I have to do, you know, I get to do uh, so many different things. Even at the size company we are now, I still, you know, uh, am designing and building the sets and um, learning all kinds of trying to keep up with social media marketing, which is its own world. Uh, Absolutely. That's, that's hard to keep up with. But uh, uh, so I'm always getting to learn a new skill, um, which which has kept me so uh, invigorated for this nine years now. What was the first opera that you got cast in, you said, in college? <laughs> I got cast as Horace Tabor in The Ballad of Baby Doe. Uh, oh, I've is, never seen that one, but I've heard a lot about it. Well, terrible casting. You know, he's supposed to be a 60-year-old or something, and I was 20. Uh, well, that's college <laughs> casting for you, though. And uh, it, 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 I'm sure it did not go very well. I'm, I know every every night it would be like notes. Okay, everybody can leave. Josh, you stay. <laughs> but I knew nothing. I, did, I literally did not know upstage from downstage. Uh, right. Like I said, I just knew how to sing. That That's all there was to it. Uh, but um, it's worked out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, considering your resume is pretty impressive all over the place. What made you then decide, was it a goal in Pacific Opera Projects to do more modern, unique, found space things? Or did it just kind of grow into that? Uh, it very much just grew into that. So... When we started Pacific Opera Project, it was really just about doing uh, quality productions that we could be proud of and that singers could be proud to be in uh, on a budget that uh, was sustainable and um, tickets that were affordable and uh, making productions that were that people wanted to see. And uh, that just organically became this this kind of wacky, zany typically uh, production style. Most of that came from budget. Like, you know, when you don't have the budget to rent uh, the Artani Theater or or mm -hmm. the El Portal Theater, you're going to do it wherever you can afford. And that gives you all these limitations, which uh, ended up being just not at all limitations, but just, you know, forcing you to be uber creative. And, um, <clears throat> you know, because costumes for modern day are a lot cheaper than you know the 1700s so uh so it was true. always finding a way of what's the most clever thing we can do with the space we have and with the budget we have and that just started leading us down this path um and then before you know it that's our that's our brand that's a really awesome brand oh thank you thank you <laughs> Says so, so a person who's made my career doing like non-traditional venues and <laughs> strange yeah. new work. So like, it's totally up my alley. It's the stuff that I really love. Yeah, it's uh, it's always exciting. You know, it's always something new. Uh, we we do return to venues now, uh, which is great to get a second or third run at them. But uh, we still uh, and our audience really kind of demands that we seek out new places uh, every season. So. We're always, always looking. I always walk into a place and go, I could do an opera here. <laughs> I did the same thing. I'm yeah. like, oh, look at this abandoned warehouse. This is a great place to do a new production. Yeah, we know. should do that. I just drove by a place in Long Beach the other day and thought, oh, where's Long Beach Opera? That's the perfect place. <laughs> yeah, they might be there. They they get around too. So Yeah, that's where uh, Cindy and I, Cindy first really got into doing opera and since it was in long beach where i lived yeah we we both worked at lbo for a number of years oh. kind of ingrained in us too <laughs> what is where the first you... oh go ahead Sorry. okay what's the first the first time i really heard about you guys was for the um the star trek um oh i can't remember the name of it um abduction version oh, yeah, was that kind of the first the first show you guys did where you kind of took it and, and modernized it, put it in a different location or. No. Uh, that's probably our most famous, but we started long ago. Um, <clears throat> 2011, our first show was trouble in Tahiti. That was fairly traditional. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we did a Giovanni. No, we did a, yeah. Don Giovanni next. And that was exactly what I was talking about where we just had, I was doing the costumes back then and we had no budget. I'm talking like, you know, 
$600 for costumes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I just had this idea of this, you know, these characters, these big, bold characters, um, against the black and white set. And so I said, you know, I want my characters to be, I want Giovanni to be red. I want Leporello to be orange. I want Elvira to be purple. And then I started looking for suits or costumes for that. And at that time, uh, really you could only buy one style of suit if you wanted all those colors. And that was kind of like a oversized zoot suit. Mm, Right. Now you can buy any suit you want in any color. Um, and that just kind of grew into, well, they look like gangsters. And then yeah, start thinking, well, this show kind of works as gangsters. So, uh, it just grew into that. It wasn't the concept, but so then that, that was kind of our first take. And then last year we did a revival of that. It pulled out all the stops and, uh, that was very much, it looked like Dick Tracy. Um, <laughs> it was phenomenal. And we did that in a warehouse, uh, space. Um, and we, then we did a Cozy Fantute the next year. And that's really the first, like, um, first, like, TV movie gimmick one we did because uh, that was set loosely as Gone with the Wind. So all the images look like Gone with the Wind. Uh, the guys are Confederate soldiers who come back as Yankees. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Despina is Mammy. And... Uh, <laughs> The girl okay. was kind of scarlet, um, and Alfonso was Brett Butler. Uh, but that was in Italian, and, uh, you know, some of the super titles had the famous lines, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Um, and that was the first time we kind of did that. Um, and then that grew over the years into um, actually go ahead and writing new English librettos uh, so we can mm-hmm. really get all the gimmicks and jokes in with the abductions, the Star Trek abduction and uh, <clears throat> the magic flute. Uh, those are, you know, just completely rewritten. Some of the songs aren't even about what the original text is about, um, <laughs> which it works really well. I mean, you know. Yeah, I thought it did too. Cause I had seen, um, the magic flute and sitting i can't remember where i thought it was london she thought it was somewhere else but anyway i've I knew seen it like five flute. different times and i've done it twice so i'm just very familiar with magic flute yeah and but. my husband had no idea it's an opera and so i was like yeah but we're gonna go see it because it's mario and <laughs> you know mario so you should be able to follow along well enough and i hear it's in english so it's great you can watch and understand and i can watch and understand and yeah, it was you guys like sold out. It was a huge oh, yeah. audience there, and you did the live stream, which I know a number of people watched. But it was just great watching something I already knew in another world that I already knew, and the little things you threw in, like Mario can't go left. <laughs> Amazing! He just ran into the wall. Well, I mean that's that's the whole point behind all of these um, all of these updates, uh, whether they're movie or TV based or something else. It's really about how do I get someone like your husband that you just said to come see an opera. Uh, they're mm-hmm. not going to come see it because it's Mozart and they're definitely not going to come see it because it's called the magic flute. Uh, but if they see uh, something they recognize and that they think they can relate to, they might give it a chance. And if they give that one a chance, maybe they'll give the next one a chance. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, uh, that's been our philosophy since day one. And it's really worked. Uh, you know, in the early days we were just getting people like that like theater goers maybe or um or people who just like saw the picture of course we were only trying to get 400 people there you know um four or 500 people over a run um and then as we've become more established we still continue to get some of those people but now we're getting you know true opera lovers who hear about us through the opera world um so it's been an interesting development over the last few seasons in particular as we've seen all this growth um but it's coming from two different worlds uh, and we're trying to to keep a good balance uh between those two those two worlds because there were people there my age there were people there who knew the knew the original very well there were little kids who were like 10 years old i ran into in the bathroom who were super excited and i'm like how yeah. do you even know mario that was like kind of even before your I know. time i know but they right? were super I, excited to I, be I there because of, but uh it's it's just like star trek uh it just keeps going like 
So they just keep pumping out new Smash Brother games, new merchandise. So, you know, everybody who's been, you know, alive since, you know, I would say 40 and under uh, has lived with Mario their whole life, you know. And same thing with Star Trek. Even if you don't watch TV, you know, basically everyone alive at this point. You're going to recognize the characters and recognize. Yeah, with Star Trek. It's been around 50 years or whatever. So, um, you know, those are like, I just feel when you put like a franchise like that with Mozart in particular, it's hard to, it's hard to miss. Well, yeah, right. Because Mozart just has such amazing music anyways. Yeah. Plus some of the songs are just catchy. You you know them because they're played in commercials or other movies or things like that. Yep. So how about, because I know Abduction has now gone to a couple different theaters across the United States. I think it was what, in Orlando last year, and I think you guys just performed, or that production has performed somewhere else. Do you do you advertise it yourself, or do you just have people come up to you being like, we really want to do this production? Um, both. Um, mm-hmm. I'm always trying to pitch it um, other places. That's how I really make my living, and... Uh, and it gets a little money for pop if they rent the costumes or, or whatever. Um, uh, with the abduction, the the week we opened, someone just cold called me and said, we want to do this. Uh, <laughs> That's so awesome. Great. You know, um, that hasn't happened many times. Uh, most of the time I have to go out and kind of pitch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that one's great. We did that at uh, in San Antonio. We did that in Chattanooga, Orlando. Oakland, um, twice here. Southern Illinois Music Festival is where I actually put it, the thoughts together and did it the very first time. So I think it's seven or eight times we've done that show now. That's amazing. I'm friends with Brian Chaney. Um, I think who is in it with you? And I yeah. forget. Robinson's the last name, but I can't remember her first name. And I've done two shows with her. But uh, I'm friends with both of them on Facebook. So it kept popping up. And I was like, what is this show? Why have I never heard of it before? And how can I get involved? Because this is totally my... Oh, Brittany. Brittany it's Robinson. Oh, Brittany Renee Robinson. Yeah. She's yes. Yes. A, yeah, a, she's amazing. So I just kept seeing her like pop up all over the place, especially when you guys were in Orlando, because you went to a con in Orlando, I think, and you were all dressed... Or they were all dressed up from the show. Yep. And she was like, it was kind of amazing, you know, talking about opera at a uh, comic convention with a whole yeah, bunch of... Yeah. Uh, comic yeah. nerds, but yeah, well, Connecticut. We did it. She did it in Connecticut with us as well. So I think it's eight places we do. We've done that one. See, I love <laughs> when the nerdy world and the theater world combine. There's so many yeah. people we've talked to who who are cosplayers or play D and D or anything like that. It's like yes, yeah, <laughs> we're becoming more acceptable. Yeah, yeah it's definitely. Uh, there's a lot of crossover uh, between uh, opera fans and and those worlds and opera singers and those worlds, you know, I've never had singers want to be in a show so bad as the star Trek or the, uh, the magic flute, you know? <laughs> well, hell yeah. It was excellent. <laughs> who, who, when else do you get to dress up like Zelda? I know. I know. Jump I know. over fireballs and <laughs> sing opera. So how do you come up with ideas for your other ones? You told us about Don Giovanni, which kind of just happened out of necessity. But now do you guys kind of. So both of those, both of those two famous uh, mashups were. um, I was asked to direct that opera and I said, oh, I hate that opera. How do I make it? I mean, I hate Magic Flute. Um, it's. I mean, the music's so wonderful, but the story itself is just so horrible. And I feel like that about Cozy too. It's not like never want to do Cozy. <laughs> See, I love Cozy, but if if you sing in Cozy, you love Cozy. Um, well, that's true. That's true. Uh, so it's always something about how do we make the best out of whatever situation we're in. So uh, both of those uh, abduction and magic flute were taking place at Southern uh, Music Festival. And, um, God, the abduction, I don't know. I, I just, I think the word abduction spurred that, uh, alien abduction. And, uh, <laughs> and just, I started thinking about that. I looked at Star Wars cause that's what I really know better. Um, yeah, and it just it's... doesn't line up at all. Uh, 
And so I started looking at Star Trek, which I did not know that well. Um, and I just was like, wow, this is an episode of Star Trek. Every episode's the same of the original series. They beam down to some planet to rescue somebody. Uh, <laughs> Stuff is goes the wrong. Of, somebody of, gets of captured. Gun, right? so, <clears throat> and it had a lot of upside in that <clears throat> uh, just unlimited material for jokes and for dialogue and um, – and then, uh, you know, a byproduct was that we really get around any kind of uh, racial problems in that show. Mm -hmm. uh, let, you know, because they're all Klingons. Nobody's going to be offended <laughs> necessarily. Yeah, be offended by that. <laughs> um, and then, but what really made that production was the dumb luck of having Brian Cheney and Robert Norman um, do be cast in that production before we ever even knew what it was going to be and oh my god those it guys just took it was probably it. brian's dream come true because he is probably a bigger nerd than my sister is <laughs> like him talking about star wars and star trek like he just go on and, and he's yes. like met everybody he's met yep. like george lucas he has things from yeah he has or something like that um, so it was really those guys and a lot of other people along the way, but those two just like jumped on it and just like made it, uh, you know, made it what it is today. And then of course, both, they did it almost every revival we've done. So the jokes just keep, keep coming and keep getting at it. <laughs> and then, um, so much to the point where at some point I have to say, okay, we gotta, we gotta rein it back in a little bit. tone it down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, totally yeah. that. And then the the magic flute, uh, that was a cool story. Um, I we were supposed to do magic flute at Southern Illinois Music Festival, and I wasn't very excited about it to begin with. And then uh, I we got hired. I got hired to do another abduction, the one in Orlando, and so it turned out I was barely going to be there uh, to stage magic flute. Um, you know, like four days I was going to be there to stage magic flute. And um, my buddy Scott Levine, who ended up playing Papageno, uh, was going already. I said, I need you to assistant direct this. Um, I'm just going to show up and, you know, kind of polish it up once we get there. Um, and so we were thinking about, well, what are we going to do? Let's. I, we're not doing flute in German in Southern Illinois. That's just a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> And so it was crazy. Like we both had the same idea, like independently about video games. Um, and I remember the exact moment where I was driving the Opera Santa Barbara and called him and said, uh, and he said, Hey, what about video games? I said, you're not going to believe me, but I was just thinking about video games. <laughs> um, I still doubt he believes me on that, but, uh, I was. And it just, you know, it's just like, I, I never want to be a director who forces a concept on something. So, you know, we did take the time to make sure it really played out. But I mean, the trials and stuff, they're just straight out of video games, right? So yeah, and, um, a prince and a princess being rescued. I mean, it's it just, you know, it works. Uh, so then we set about writing that that was that was a tough rewrite. Um, um uh, i i always i think why is because you know we were trying to make magic flute really a comedy and it's really just not a comedy um i think we were pretty successful in the end it was but... hilarious i was like oh. this is much better than the original <laughs> yeah. no offense mozart but i mean zelda was running around and fireballs <laughs> were being thrown so <laughs> Uh, yeah, but that was a tough that was a tough one to rewrite. But I'm very happy with it. I hope that gets out. That one should go everywhere. I mean, every college in the country has to do Magic Flute every couple of years, so mm -hmm. why not do one people want to come see? You know, and one that's cheap to costume and and uh, you know set cheap set too. So right, you yeah. can make it as like corny or as right funny no, as yeah. because that's how that's how. Mario is so that's yeah. what makes it. Yeah, I called Stacy called me afterwards because she always tells me about the shows he see, she sees, and I was like, "Who is Sorostro? Who are all these characters? Who did this person play?" <laughs> As she was telling me, I was like, "Okay, I can see that." Yeah, okay, yeah, that was too. How did the trials work at the end? <laughs> it was great. They did the water world, and they had to jump. You know, they had projections of the the little octopusy guys going up and down, and they were jumping through them, and fireballs well, were thrown and. You can watch it all. It's still online. 
Perfect. Oh, everybody can watch it. I know it's still up there. Huh? I didn't realize it was still up there. I knew yeah, you guys yeah. had streamed it. You can it, find but... it on our YouTube channel or somehow on our Facebook. It's still there, too. I, I, probably on our website by now. Okay. okay well, we're gonna... We'll have to tag that so everybody else can watch it. Yeah. And, of course, being from Southern California and, and working in Long Beach for so many years, um, almost everybody I knew in Southern California either had tickets or were upset they didn't have tickets because they're in rehearsals, so they were all live streaming it that day. Yeah. I think I was actually traveling in the air, so I couldn't watch it. But... <laughs> It was very. I think we had twelve thousand people check that out, which is enormous for us. Enormous. That is huge. Yeah. So you said you've seen a growth in what you've done in the last nine years. Have you seen that as far as people auditioning as well? Just because your name's getting out there, or people are more excited about what you're doing? Well, I mean, you're in the business. You know, there's no shortage of singers. Uh, even when we were nobody, nobody, you know, we would still have three hundred people begging to sing for us in New York um, every time right. we would go. Um, and so that hasn't changed. We've, I mean, it. we do, we could hear auditions for five days straight if we wanted. I just can't do it. So we, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> we've limited that a little bit. Um, we, we typically do three very long days in New York, nine to nine. Um, and then two days here in LA uh, every year um, mm-hmm. to cast, four or five shows for the season. So um, it's great. This is one of my, I love meeting and hearing singers. It's, it's, you know, it's why I'm in this business. Uh, so mm-hmm. it, that's, that's great. And yeah, we, uh, we do. Um, sure. We've kind of moved up the ranks of, you know, who wants to sing here? Like, but uh, still my favorite are the, the young singers who are uber talented and just so hungry to be, to be out on stage, um, which is what we get consistently all the time. It's it's amazing. Um, I'm so lucky. And that was a big, I'm so proud also because that was a big part of why this company started was I was seeing people around me with, with you know, world-class voices singing at terrible places uh, and just their time being wasted. And I just felt this isn't right we got to find some way to, to give these great singers, uh, better opportunities in LA. So very proud of that. If you work, if you do all the auditions in New York and LA, do you house people and bring them out here? How does that work? Yep. Uh, so every show, uh, I mean, we try to house and or try to hire from Southern California. It's just easier for us. And, um, but uh, every show we end up having two or three um, singers from out of state. And so we fly them here and we get them a car and uh, they stay in host housing with one of our donors. Um, pretty standard for around the country. It's just complicated yeah. in LA because so crowded and, you know, car is definitely essential in LA. So um, we try to limit it somewhat, but uh, like for butterfly, we have, uh, our Pinkerton and our Sharpless uh, are from out of town. Our Conductor is from out of town. Our Goro is from out of town. Yeah, everybody else is from LA. When well, you do the not really. <laughs> our sister <laughs> from from New York, but she's from L- she lives in New York, but she's from LA, so she's staying with with uh, relatives. That's how Cindy first started. She stayed out on my couch to do. Uh... Nixon. So, yeah, Nixon in China at Long Beach Opera. And then it grew from there, and eventually the, she was getting a car, she was getting housing, she was getting paid flights, but yeah, yep. originally, it was all on us. Yep. For the translations, are you... Do you do the translations yourself? Do you work with other people? Because are you trained in German and Latin and Japanese <laughs> and all that? No. Uh, so, um, I do all the... Typically, I do the translations myself, and my wife will help when I get stuck. Um, Magic Flute, Scott and I wrote together. Um, Scott Levine and I wrote together. Uh, but that's just another one of those aspects of my job that I never knew I would do, and I love it. I mean, I love it until I hate it. Um, it's It gets very frustrating, um, but it's so <laughs> rewarding when you find that perfect rhyme or that perfect you know, new meaning for a song. Um, 
but it's it's can be really grueling. It's me sitting at my desk for like three weeks with uh, the libretto, a recording, uh, thesaurus.com, and rhymezone.com. <laughs> just till you can't think anymore every day. Uh, Magic Flute in particular was just like, took me three weeks. I thought it was going to take me like four days. Um, and <laughs> going crazy, uh, trying to make that make it all work and uh, we got there but it was tough um then butterfly is so most of the time those I, I i take huge liberties and you know as i say change meanings of songs it's all about getting a laugh or or a, a situation uh with butterfly uh it was straight straight by the book so i worked so hard to um i only wrote the english sections of course um but i tried so hard to keep it you know exactly what the libretta said in Italian. I tried to make English and singable, um, which was a new challenge for me um, mm -hmm. and a different challenge. So it was fun. And, and I know that show inside and out. So it was actually pretty easy. Right. You know the meanings behind it. So you know how to translate the words. Yeah, and I properly. sang Pinkerton a lot. So, you know, it was almost innate uh, in me for that one. Uh, the Japanese sections were incredibly difficult, as you can imagine. Um, so Aki Samora uh, labored over those for about three months um, to, to get those just because of how many syllables uh, Japanese has versus Italian. And then, you know, really trying to culturally do it right, keep it, keep it <clears throat> the same, but also keep all the, you know, the, the culture so based on respect and, and, uh, hierarchy uh, trying to get that in also um it was very difficult and uh he did a great job it, it just it was amazing last night the the performers you cast to play the japanese roles did they speak japanese was that kind of like a requirement or do you guys have a um i mean i would call him a dialect coach but uh, mm -hmm. a language coach there mm -hmm. to help them with the so, pronunciation of the words. Uh, so when we when I started this whole dream, I thought, how great would it be to get you know all Japanese or Japanese Americans in the in the lead roles? Mm -hmm. and then you know we'll probably have to get a couple Korean singers to sing the bit roles and the chorus. Mm -hmm. Well, then we uh, I met Naoko Suga, who has a, a Japanese choir in Torrance, and she's like, my, oh, my choir okay. the whole chorus. I was like, really? Okay, so that just took care of a huge, huge chunk. chunk yeah, and uh, there really wasn't anyone in that chorus strong enough to sing like the very the small compromario roles. So I went out and found those, mm -hmm. uh, and then we were getting so close to having an all Japanese cast that it just kind of became like, okay, we have to now. Now we have to, and we did, and we actually ended up casting uh chocho-san and suzuki and the bonds twice because the the first round that we had uh the chocho-san had a freak uh wisdom tooth <laughs> incident and oh no suzuki and the bonds the bonds was her husband and the suzuki was her best friend who was you know all doing it as a favor it was a favor 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 so we lost all of them so then we had to recast all of that with with japanese american singers and we did it again and then we started a rehearsal and um, <clears throat> two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago. Uh, so all those, all those folks are Japanese American. Now the Suzuki doesn't read uh, Japanese. So she had to learn it all by rote. Just by listening to it. Yeah. Now, of course she's been, ex she's half Japanese. So she's had a lot of exposure to the language. Uh, the Goro, the Chocho-san, their native speakers, all the, everyone else is a native speaker. Um, but then you have the Sharpless, who's a white guy, mm -hmm. who had to learn like, you know, two thirds of his role in Japanese. Uh, mm. Just crazy talented. Then, <clears throat> uh, I mean, this is news, not news now because it happened last night, about a week ago, a week ago, today. Uh, we just decided our Chocho-san needed a little more time to be ready. Uh, so we had our cover start preparing. Uh, she is not Japanese, Asian, but not Japanese. And somehow in this week, she learned the entire role 
in Japanese in one week and wow. went on last night. <laughs> it was, I can't even understand how it was possible. Right. Learning, yeah. I Learning mean, any just, role is difficult. Any but. role. I mean, she knew Butterfly. I mean, uh, okay. she had done that in Italian. That was going to be my next question. Were these like role debuts or if they already kind of knew the music and knew their character? A, everyone was a debut except except her. Oh, no. Uh, Kim has done um, Suzuki. Suzuki many, many times. Um, okay. Um, yeah. But I mean, learning, I had to learn three lines for my curtain speech last night. And it, it, that was almost impossible. <laughs> how, how they're doing this. I mean, you just look at the transliteration. And it's just a bunch of syllables. You know, and they're doing it with context and with, uh, you know. And blocking. Inflection and blocking. And it's just unbelievable what these singers are doing. How, how is their reaction to it? Because I know a lot of people don't like Butterfly because of the whole Asians are submissive. But you cast it as the Japanese are Japanese and the Americans are Americans and they're singing in their traditional language. Have you gotten a lot of feedback about doing that positive or negative? Oh, uh, overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, uh, I can't imagine how anyone could ever say anything negative about the PC side of this production. Um, uh, you know, I mean, we went even the extra step of having all Japanese cast, not just not just Asian uh, cast. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. It is amazing. I, I still can't believe it happened. Um, but you know what I what I'm so proud about uh, with this production is that, and I, I in all honesty, that was not the point of this project. The point of this project was to tell the story in a, in a more interesting way. Um, so, you know, it's just, we're so accustomed to, even last night as we're going into the theater, I was just thinking, we, opera people who have seen Madame Butterfly so many times, just accept this convention that somehow they're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. and, in Italian, and, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just like so ingrained in us that uh, that this, this oh, it just worked that way, you know. And it, this, why hasn't somebody done this before? Is my my big question. Like, exactly. or done it in two other whatever Italian and English or whatever uh, <clears throat> to demonstrate, you know, what it could really be like. Um, so I, I just I'm thrilled that we were the first to do it and uh i hope this gets done again this is a very tough sell to other places it's just very hard to produce um so many things you need to make it happen not to say not, i mean not the least the casting of it the casting is the hardest um yeah you know and then it's just like okay well if we're gonna have authentic casting are we gonna have authentic costumes are we gonna yeah. have yeah, I was just gonna ask. What are we gonna have fans from Japan, or what will can fans from China do? You know, um, it's it's uh, we we did it all. Um, we we found a costumer who was just a godsend, a uh, uh, kimono designer who who did all the costuming. So they they are just they're not costumes. They're the real the real deal. You know. Um. <clears throat> what about being at the Eritani? the Eritani Theater being part of the Japanese American Cultural Community Center and obviously in the heart of Little Tokyo. Uh, yeah. Did you get a lot of new people that you weren't expecting because because of your location and the content of the show? I think so. Um, you know, I there's lots know, of yeah. there's lots of names that I don't recognize. There's lots of Japanese names. Uh, you know, I don't know if those folks came because they saw it advertised in Little Tokyo or Aratani or their family members of the chorus, uh, but certainly knew. And also we shattered our attendance record. So uh, Magic Flute, over five performances, we had 1,780 um, people attend that. And this, over three performances, we're going to have about 2,300 people attend this. So Excellent. Yeah, because the Aratani is um, a fairly big house. Much bigger yeah, than, I think, El Patel. Packed it last night. Uh, we only have 30 tickets left for next Sunday. And, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm in the, sure. the back row because I waited so long. Yeah, well, the sound is great up there, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer the balcony anyways, but it's it, really I was excited good. to see that. sound is really good up there. 
um, yeah, it's just it's exceeding exceeding everything we thought. We've had this number. I've had this number in my mind, uh, two thousand by twenty twenty, um, for a couple of years. And you know, we've had consultants come in and say, "Oh, with your model, that's not really going to be possible." And here we are. We just did it. You know, we had two thousand people come to see a show. Um, and it's not twenty twenty. Good job. You know, we're we're ahead ahead of schedule. Now doing it every production is another story, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you have two under your belt now. I mean, you yeah. probably could have done that many for uh, Magic Flute if we you had a bigger house, it. correct? Yeah, we could have. If we would have added one one performance, we would have got there. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I don't think you would have had any trouble selling those tickets. Yeah. So, what else you have coming up in your season? You still have two more shows after this this season. Is that correct? Two more shows, so we take the summer off, uh, which will be nice, uh, and then um, we're doing the Mikado. <laughs> uh, Two like Japanese shows next to each other. Of, of Butterfly, so. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I figured Mikado is my favorite opera of all time. I figured if I'm ever going to get away with doing it again, it'll be after this, after this Butterfly, so that's what we're doing. Um and uh, I love that show. And we're doing that at the Ebel Club, which is our tiny little venue where we have food and wine. Uh, we have 42 tables of two or four and then about 35 general admission seats. And we cram a production in there with a little orchestra. Um, and it's just going to be a blast. That's uh, We did that in 2013. And this is a revival of that. Um, the cast is fabulous. The costumes are outrageous. Um, Oh, it's Mikado. You have to have outrageous costumes oh, for yeah. that. It's gonna be, oh, I just, I'm excited already. Uh, <laughs> and an interesting twist: the girl who went on last night for Chocho-san was already cast as Yum Yum, and <laughs> <laughs> she's hitting them both. Uh, wow, good for her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, um, and then our yearly, uh, we do Labo M, aka the Hipsters, every year now in December. So that's. Uh, an update of uh, Bohem with only seven people and a piano. Um, and it's set in current day Highland Park where the production takes place. So it's just like hipsters off the street walked in and went on stage and uh, showed us their life. So that's that's one of our trademark. I mean, that is our trademark production. Uh, this will be our fifth fifth time doing it, I think. so. Was we that another every- one that was started because modern costumes are easier than old Yeah, costumes? that one was a crazy, crazy idea. So we were doing Sweeney Todd in our second season, which who does Sweeney Todd in their second season? Uh, but <laughs> Good point. We had, no, we had nothing to lose back then. It was like, oh, well, if it doesn't work out, oh, well, that was fun for a year. Um, but it was a huge hit, uh, and we sold out nine performances or something. And uh, me and a couple guys in the show were sitting over here in Eagle Rock saying, hey, what are you going to do when Sweeney's over? Um, You know, I said, I got to go back to the restaurant and make some money. And, you know, I got to teach lessons. I got to get another church job. And somebody said, ah, it's just like Bohem, you know, just like the guys in Bohem sitting around. And so we said, well, let's not go back to work. Why don't we just do Bohem? (laughs) Why don't we just continue to do shows? (laughs) Yeah. So it was like seriously an afterthought to Sweeney Todd, but, you know, we thought about it early enough. We said, oh, we're going to have 1,200 people coming to see Sweeney Todd. Um, they might only be coming to see Sweeney Todd because they like Johnny Depp or whatever. Because it's Sondheim, yeah. yeah but, so maybe they'll come see an opera right after that. And uh, so we found this Ebel Club in, in Highland Park and convinced them to let us do the show there. And that was the first time we ever had table seating. Um which turns out to be the best thing we've ever done. Uh, people just go crazy for it because it's so much more social. You're sitting there with your friends and have, drinking wine and eating food. And uh, we do three intermissions, so everybody gets plenty of time to talk and and uh, get more wine or whatever they want. And uh, we did that. We sold out those three performances, and we thought we were crushing it. Back then, we had 23 tables in there. Now we crammed 42 tables in there, and we did <laughs> – eight performances last year and could have done more um so it's a it's a great it's like our christmas carol or something like that yeah that's exactly what i was thinking it's just the your your christmas standard now yeah we'll see how long i can sustain that it's it's very you know it's very trying in december to find housing for artists and 
everybody's busy and mm-hmm. um, but as long as people are still coming, we're gonna do it. Well, you're a little bit early enough. I mean, at least you're not performing like yeah. that week between Christmas and and New Year's, which yeah. it surprises year, me how many shows do that. But it's just, yeah, I know, right? Uh, last terrible. year was tough because we we had so many performances, we double cast, so that meant you know double rehearsals, double housing, double housing, yeah. And we went right up to the twenty third, I think, last year. So um, this year we just scaled it back, one cast, five shows. Get your tickets early or, you know, you're not going to get them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just looking on your website at that food plate is like everything I love. <laughs> She's Chips, like, cheese, maybe not Moem, but I'm going to go for the food. Because... <laughs> no, I'm just going to have to subscribe now instead of just individually, continually buy tickets. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'd catch that one for sure. It's, it's, uh, it's nothing like it. Um, it's just fun, 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 and then so sad at the end. <laughs> so sad. Yeah. Great way to go into a holiday season. Yeah. Oh, that might be a bohem I might be interested in. I always say I never want to do another another bohem, but that's because I've always done like traditional bohems, yeah. and the relationships are just never there. But I feel like if it's only the seven characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so intimate, and you're so close. I'm talking like three feet away from mm-hmm. from them. Um, and they come through the audience and act two. I mean, uh, it's mm-hmm. just that makes sense. A new level of intimate <laughs> opera. Um, and it's just fun. I mean, you know, uh, oftentimes the singers have done bohems before, so it's super quick. You know, uh, we just come in, give them a couple touches, and really, most of the time they can kind of play themselves. I mean, um, uh, we can right, all if they know the role, especially, yeah. So, it's it's great, and it's become this great way to um, to let young singers do Rodolfo or Mimi or Marcello the first time in a very low stakes, uh, friendly environment. Uh, and so, you know, these folks who are doing this are now going on and singing, you know, huge places. Uh, our first Rodolfo. Uh, is now covered. He covered Siegfried at the Met in San Francisco and Washington National this year. You know, they're going on and doing great things. But back in the day, they were singing in the e-bell. They had to, because, yeah, well, you have to learn the role first somewhere. Yes. And so this is I a like perfect opportunity to learn the role. In opera, so many people play the role, this play the same role over and over. Yeah, and yeah. in musical theater and straight plays, that's not the case. Most people play a role once or twice and then move on. But in opera, like you, you kind of have to know the roles to get cast in the role. So it's great that at your guys' place, you don't just cast people who have done the role twenty times. You cast new people so they yeah. can learn the role, so they can go on and do other things or get a different perspective. Because it's not, oh, I'm doing the same role I did twenty times already. Yeah, and that's been a huge draw. Um, at pop uh you know we get singers far beyond our means because uh they know they're going to get a fun and rewarding experience and they're probably going to get some great reviews because we're in you know a, a major a major city and have good relationships with uh with the media here so uh it is not hard to convince people to come hang out in la for three weeks uh especially in december I, that's how I used to do Long Beach all the time. I was like, January, do I want to stay in New York or do I want to go to Long Beach? Let me think about this. I know. What is my fight? (laughs) Opera is traditionally sung without microphones, but I know Cindy has a lot of, uh, she does a lot of the more modern operas in found spaces and sometimes they use microphones how do you guys deal with sound does it depend on the space or the show or the budget or do you just not go with microphones at all uh we try to avoid it at all costs uh because of the costs and because of the hassle and extra tech time and you know we want to hear the real thing um but obviously when we're at the ford amphitheater uh everybody's got a lapel mic and then um we've done outdoor shows at the top of Forest Lawn Glendale, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, and there we just put, we, I, I just insist we keep it simple. So even if the sound suffers a little bit, um, we do, uh, um, it's like area mics or floor mics or something oh, like that. Okay. Um, 
because the acoustic is almost good enough there, but just not quite. A lot of the places I work, it's not even the sound quality. It's, I do a lot of newer works where it's literally written into the score that these people are mic'd or they have reverb or, you know, uh-huh, it's uh-huh. written into it, which is difficult when you're then working at traditional opera houses. We're like, well, we've never mic'd anybody before. And I'm like, well, yeah, Bohem wasn't written to be mic'd. But this piece actually calls for it in the libretto, in the music. It says that this is a mic'd piece. So it's always tricky. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, you terrify me. <laughs> I was going to ask you, because you started out as a singer. Do you still perform as a singer, or do you mostly just direct now? No, I haven't sung in many years, like seven or eight years, probably. Yeah, you just completely yeah. made the transition. and Yeah, I just, I don't really miss it. I mean, I, the first time I kind of missed it in a very long time was this butterfly, because really Pinkerton was like, First time I ever heard that was like, that's what I want to do. You know, that's mm. what I want to sing. And I did sing that several <laughs> times. But I mean, singing's hard. <laughs> I mean, this, <laughs> this is hard too, but at least I can kind of control, you know, how things are going to go to certain some extent. Um, uh, just singing is, you know, I didn't know this until I quit, uh, until I became a director, but it, I, it was really never the singing that I that I loved. I don't think it was the process and the, the um, experience of meeting people and hanging out with people. It was never like I came off stage and I was like, Oh yes, that was like glorious. It, it was never that for me. It was uh when's the party start or <laughs> what do I get to memorize next? That kind of thing. So this way you still get to enjoy it because you're oh, still yeah. part of the process, but you don't have to be on stage. Right. Interesting. I mean, that's what I love about it, too, is being the process. I don't want to be the center of attention, you know, but I want to be in the rehearsal room. I want to be there in the production meetings or in tech when these decisions are being made. And I want to watch everything, like, come together and be created. Yeah. Exactly. And that, to me, is what's... And then, like you said, the friendships. It's it's being with the people and being surrounded by these people all the time. Yep. That uh, drives me. Do you have a love. lot of the same team working on all of your shows? Uh, I have the same costumer, except this time, although she did end up making the Pinkerton and the Kate Pinkerton dress. Um, Maggie's done like 30 operas in a row for us. Um, wow. And then recently I've got an assistant director, Carson Gilmore, who's been on for the past uh, season and a half or something like that, probably. Um, so we've got a pretty good shorthand now. Um of course, we have a little staff here at Pop, a company manager and development director. Um, uh, and then uh, we started uh, with a full-time music director for many years, and now we've gone to uh, guest conductors for every show, which is fun. Always get to meet somebody new. Mm-hmm. And where do you guys build, or do you just rent out different locations? <laughs> The pictures look uh, like someone's house. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I built, uh, we bought a house in Eagle Rock two years ago. Before that, everything was built at our, the house we rented in Highland Park that had a big backyard. I mean, ridiculous builds. Like the entire Sweeney Todd set was in my backyard for two months. The, we did the Cozy <laughs> Fantute, like Terra was there attached to the back of my house for like two months. I mean, it never rained. (laughs) Um, It was crazy. And I just had a landlord who like didn't care or didn't care to hassle me about it. Um, And I just kept building little shacks everywhere that had costumes and props. uh, And when we moved to a nicer house over here, all that stopped um, for the most part. Although I still did build like the fences for, for butterfly in my backyard here. Um, so we were, we got a great place called Ecosets that we use now. Um, oh yeah. I get emails from them. They do a lot of recycling of old sets. And fairly affordable to, to build there. Um, but it's really tough. I just, we get everything prepped and I say, we can afford two days. We're going 12 hours, two days in a row and we just get it done. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, all that, all that is not super sustainable. At some point we're going to have to figure out how we can do this on a bit more sustainable. But I mean, nine years in and we're making it work. So um, right. 
and you are growing still, so. Yeah, yeah, we're growing like crazy. Um, and the which, sets were gorgeous. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm very happy with this. Very, very happy with this butterfly set. I think it's a new level of of production for us. I mean, I say that. I mean, we did Carmen with 60 people last year. So, oh, wow. you know, it's just it, the things we've been able to pull off, I have no explanation of how it's it's possible. It's just a lot of people working really hard and really wanting it to happen. Um, I mean, this, this past year has just been uh, crazy. You know, we did uh, that Carmen at the Ford. So that was one night only, you know, 60 people on stage um, with one rehearsal, right? Wow. One rehearsal. And then four weeks later, we do a Traviata with 50 people in it. Um, and then the Bohem with, you know, however many, eight performances in December. Then flute was a, a pretty large undertaking. And then this, it's just, I'm ready for a break. But <laughs> I'm not sure I'd get one. I get one from Pop, but. Uh, and then you go and do other shows? Yeah, I got, uh, well, I go to Houston to do Butterfly. It goes to Opera in the Heights right after this. So, and then, uh. And I'm driving the set out there in costumes. And then I have a Trovatore and a Skiki in May. Taking all of June off. No, all of July. All of July. <laughs> Some month. Some month. Some yeah. month coming up. I'm going to sleep. Yeah. And then, then the fall's great. It's just Mikado for a month here. That's three weekends of performances. Uh, Skiki at Opera Columbus. That's easy. Uh, I might know some of your team there. Oh, yeah? I haven't worked there yet, but I, I hear great things about them. Yeah, we've, I've heard amazing things about them, but I have a, um, a lighting designer who works there often and now a stage manager who just was asked oh, to do a show there in the fall, I think, but I don't remember if it's geeky or not. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to yeah, pay attention. To find out, yeah. Theater world is small, especially opera. It is small, yeah. Skiki and then Pagliacci in Connecticut and... Uh, OM here. So for me, kind of light. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I think I've averaged 10 operas a year for the past five years. So. That's, I think Cindy only gets to like five or six. Yep. Five or six. I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's, no, like I, I hit six and I'm like ready to, to yeah. not be able to function anymore. But you know how it goes. We got to take it when you can get it. You know, I hate to say no to anything. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly then, the problem yeah. I'm in right now. I got like five shows going and I'm like, damn it. <laughs> when do I have time to do this? My husband's like, are we having dinner? I'm like, yeah, maybe next week. <laughs> I got some shows awesome. to decide. <laughs> I know. I know. Do, do yeah, your wife and... Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a puppy on your lap right now. I know the rest of you can't see, but I just posted a picture of the back of his head. Um, do, do your wife and animals go with you when you travel, or you kind of go by yourself for a couple weeks and come uh, home? My, my wife is really good about coming out for a show, usually. Um, no, not my animals, though. I mean, these are her animals, I should say. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're we're pretty lucky that she has a job that allows her to come out and hang out. I mean, that's again why I stayed in this business, right? It was to go see new places, and and uh, it's great that she can come along. And really, going forward, I'm really trying to limit where I go um, based on you know what I want to see as much as what the show is at this point. You know, um, I've I've directed all my favorites, I think already. So now it's just like, oh, man, I'd really love to go to Alaska or I'd really love to go to Hawaii. How do I try to make that happen? You know? Um, yeah. Didn't have the company pay for you to fly out there and room and board. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Good plan. That's the dream. We'll see. So anybody in Alaska or Hawaii, <laughs> we have an opera person who would like to go out there. You know, I did, I sang it at Opera Fairbanks years ago. That was amazing, like dog sledding and ice hotel and all kinds of stuff. Nice. Yeah. Definitely perks to running all over the place. Yeah. Uh, well, so I better get going pretty quick. This dog is uh, wanting to go out. Uh, anything else? No, I was just going to say we're about in an hour, so 
Thank you so much. This podcast is going to be released uh, in between your two weekends of shows. So if there are still tickets available, everybody go get a ticket. And I will see you guys there on Sunday. If not, there's shows coming up. So don't don't miss yeah. them. Are you guys going to do any more live streams for people who can't actually make it? Yeah. Or was Magic Fish yeah, kind doing, of the first? Yeah, we're going to live stream Sunday. So uh, we're, we'll Great. announce that tomorrow, probably. Uh, uh, yeah, that'll be a big one. And it's a matinee, so East Coast people can watch. Um it should be very, it's a very, very moving production. Um, I'm excited uh, about it. It's uh, it's really working. <laughs> Excellent. Well, good job. Thank you so much for taking some time after, you know, an opening night to sit down and record with us for a little bit. All right. Thanks. And let me know and we'll get this up everywhere online once, uh, when it comes out. Yep. We'll post Wonderful. on Facebook. Yeah, we post on Facebook and Instagram and our webpage, and I share it on different places, and you'll be tagged, and Pop will be tagged and everything, so it should be pretty easy to find. Great. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstocktheater. Auto music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.